This is the MagicWordPodcast.com. Silken Rainbow, Aethelard, Laughing Trickster, find my card. Illusion is the thing we say, but I believe it's magic. Hello, this is Scott Wells for the MagicWordPodcast.com. You might notice, of course, that is a little bit different music than what we have had in the past. That is a blast from the past. That is by Kathy DeFrancis singing The Magic Song, which is a original creation of hers. And I've put that up on YouTube. We'll see how long that lasts, but I have a link to that. If you'll go to the magicwordpodcast.com website, you can then click on that to go and listen to that in its entirety. It was something that was a feature in the two-person act that Kathy DeFrancis did with Steve Aldridge, which we're going to talk about here this week. This is an episode that is something for those who remember and also for those who like history. There will be a lot of people who might remember the Phone Family Circus from the 19, late 1970s, early 1980s, and those perhaps who may have only been born at about that time who are just getting into magic and don't remember them at all or know anything about them. They were more than just a flash in the pan. Each individual person was just a, an amazing person in their own performance in their own right. But uh, together, when they got together as the Phone Family Circus, they were just dynamic, very creative uh, musicians, magicians, jugglers, and comedians, and everything. It was just uh, really a fun, fun show, and they performed in a lot of magic conventions then as well. In fact, Di Vernon had said, apparently in his Vernon Touch that used to be in Genie Magazine, saying, quote, there were a half dozen extremely clever young chaps from Boulder, Colorado, who held the honor of being the big hit of the convention. If at any time you learn this group is appearing in your vicinity, do not fail to see their unique performance. That was from Di Vernon. And you might appreciate that I did not try to do my try to do my Vernon impression, which is not all that good. I remember, well, I'm not going to do that. <laughs> save your ears. I'm going to save your ears for listening to this wonderful podcast I've got this week with a great friend and someone who I've not visited with in, golly, nearly three decades, it seems. And the beginning of this will tell you enough about him without me telling you too much up in front here right now. So please welcome my guest from just outside Yakima, Washington. Here he is, Mr. Steve Aldridge, here on The Magic Word. I have a uh, friend of mine who I have not spoken to in so many years, and I am really excited. In fact, uh, when we got on to chat for a little bit on Zoom, I kept saying, hold on, hold on. There's so much I do want to talk about, and I want to get the spontaneity of the moment into this podcast as we talk. This is someone who I have just been a fan of his for such a, a long time, and uh, perhaps some of you were back in the day. And I say that was probably back in the 80s, uh, 90s or so. And we're going to catch up with uh, what he's doing. and. Uh, where he's been for a while. We're going to be talking with Steve Aldridge here today. And Steve was uh, one of the leading members of the Phone Family Circus. That's the F-O-A-N, Phone Family Circus. And way back when, and I don't remember, we'll talk about this, what time it was, but they were on the cover of the Linking Ring as well. And I remember how they had blatantly sung a song on the cover of the Linking Ring and held up this thing and uh, they took a picture and they made the cover of the Linking Ring. But they had just a hilarious act and it was a lot of fun. There was something that I did find o over on 
the Ask Alexander page. I just want to read this, just a, a little excerpt of just one little uh, short thing that they had done. It says, possibly the greatest bit of satire comedy was the 12 Days of Magic. It was a parody of the 12 Days of Christmas sung by the troupe, while the wizard, would dressed in red flannels, raced through the magical props, as they were mentioned, brought screams of laughter from the crowd. Starting with the gift of a pocket finger guillotine, the parody progressed through the rest of the song with two Chinese sticks, three rubber bands, four fanning decks, five linking rings, etc. They were including zombies, color-changing hanks, collapsible top hats, thumb tips, and a couple other props. The mayhem continued as the wizard progressed in a reverse order through the various items as they were mentioned with the song. Simple? Well, by the time he got to the sixth item, things were beginning to go awry, and he was racing to keep up. But he drew applause and laughter when he reached the end of the verse, the pocket finger guillotine, and demonstrated it each uh, time on cue. And a laugh riot there was. The Phone Family Circus was a fictional one, supposedly dating back to the earliest of times, although in, always in showbiz, their forefathers came to this country to seek fame and fortune. They never say whether they had found either. But it was fun and entertainment uh, was of great value, and they're rich in both. The troupe was made up of Brent Warren, Cheeseman Spark, Sam Kent, Eddie Goldstein, Barrett Felker, Kathy DeFrancis, and my guest today, Steve Aldridge, all come from Boulder, Colorado, and the stage manager was George Campbell. And... Music by Kathy DeFrancis and recording by Jamie Kibben and the choreography by Susan Hadley. Well, there's a, a lot right there to kind of start to uh, inter introduce this uh, this gentleman to talk about some of those people and where they are and what they have done and, and all that, because they really were a part of magical history and an integral part of comedy and making us laugh back in the day that were not just magicians, that were jugglers and had a, a lot of great bits and things that some people even do today. And they question perhaps, where did this originate? Well, they came from these guys way back when and they were just uh, such a lot of fun in fact Kathy DeFrancis had a uh, a, a single 45 remember, remember those the little hole in the middle over there <laughs> it was called the magic song and i've got that on my jukebox downstairs so anyhow it's uh, it's great and uh, perhaps might be able to find that someplace on youtube then as well but i've gone and on enough about this i just want to uh, tell you i'm excited to introduce my guest today actually i thought he was in boulder colorado but he's moved actually just outside of uh, yakima washington and we'll talk a little bit about that then as well please welcome here he is steve aldrich hey there steve how you buddy Scott, I'm doing great because I'm talking to you. Uh, I To be reconnected after all these years is really a thrill. I think it's probably at least 35 years since we've spoken, it's, so it's a it's, pleasure to be here. It's got to be. It's got to be. I remember getting up to uh, Colorado area from time to time and getting to visit with you up there for a while. Did you work for a while in the uh, in the magic shop then also? Sam Kent had a magic shop in Boulder. In Boulder, and I, yeah for him off and on for two or three years. And yeah. then I went up and uh, I worked at the Tower Restaurant in uh, Snowmass. Mm -hmm. And I was doing bar magic there after Bob Sheets left. And then I couldn't find a place to live. So I moved back to Denver and that's where I teamed up with Kathy. And then in those days, Doc Eason was a waiter. He had never done a trick in his life. Well, now, wait a minute. Wait a minute. I, I, I remember that Bob Sheets was working there, and I thought that Doc was there. I mean, I know he was there. He says, wait a minute. I thought perhaps he was doing bar magic as well as Bob. So Bob was only the guy. No one else was helping him. Bob Sheets and I think, let's see, Steve Spell joined him later. Yeah. Uh, Bob Sheets, and there was a guy named John Lonergan. And uh, Lonergan was the guy who invited me 
to come up there because after Sheets left the tower, he stayed in Aspen and he opened up the Jolly Jester. And so Lonergan was the only guy at the tower and he needed help. So he invited me to work there. I had worked as a bar magician in Taos, Ski Valley, New Mexico. Mm-hmm. And so my magic was very successful, but I couldn't find a place to live. So I I split from Aspen and this guy who was just a waiter and uh, his, everybody called him Doc, he said, you know, I think I'm going to try some of this magic stuff. <laughs> and I remember thinking, man, it's harder than than you think, but have at it. <laughs> and um, it was amazing. He would call me every time he was in Denver and try to get some secrets and some moves and so on. And he really applied himself. And yeah. of course, he's the success that he is today. But he did not do a single trick until he was in his uh, at least mid-20s. And uh, he just had to scrape it together by uh, watching others and trying to, you know, learn what he could. Right. On the, on the road. <laughs> learn as you earn. So he'd been watching Bob Sheets and all these other guys, uh, Lonegren and others, apparently, and you, and just kind of thought, I can do a few of these things. And he had a nice personality, I guess. And so it just seemed to be a nice fit. He had the personality and he has a real, you know, jovial nature. Yeah. So as an entertainer, he uh, really hit the mark. As far as sleight of hand goes, uh, he didn't know a thing. He didn't know the M-bomb. <laughs> yeah, that's that's pretty funny. Now, when you were doing that and you said you couldn't find a place to live, I could only imagine uh, what the cost of living in Aspen would have been and still is. And I know that Doc lived over in Snowmass. Seemed like he lived nearby. He didn't actually live right there in the in the Aspen The tower area. is in Snowmass, right in the ski area. There we go. Yes, sorry. And I don't really know where Doc lived, but he eventually got his own place down in Carbondale. And the problem in, in Aspen is you can um, rent a place for like Christmas weekend and make huge money. Mm-hmm. And it's just much more profitable to rent your place out on a day-to-day basis. So monthly rentals for a, for a local to live right. were essentially non-existent. So you came back then to Denver and uh, then that's, you said you'd met Kathy. Did you meet Kathy when you came back at that point? I, I met her before I went to Aspen and I was doing a show at the Children's Museum in Denver. Mm-hmm. And she saw my show, really enjoyed it. We got friendly. I liked her. She liked me. Mm-hmm. Uh, we started uh, dating and then uh, I would do magic. And she was a tremendous uh, promoter of me. She would introduce me to everybody and say, oh, you got to see this guy's magic. He's great. <laughs> and then she started writing songs just with me in mind. And then I created magic to go along with her songs. And so the one you mentioned, the magic song was our most famous piece. Mm-hmm. I worked out a coin manipulation routine where the coins would appear at my fingertips and vanish and fly into a glass. And part of the lyrics of that song, she sang, uh, uh, clinking silver, uh, catch my ear. Here it is, but it's not there. You tell me that it's sleight of hand, but I believe it's magic. And so as she was singing these, um, words, 
I was duplicating what she described mm -hmm. with my magic on the stage. So it was uh, the most artistic piece that I ever did in my magic career. That's what I recall also as far as the total phone family circus where each person had different acts and things that they had done. I, it seems like that that was part of it, that you did that uh, classical part with her singing to your performance. Yeah, we always included the magic song. And yeah. so it was sort of a Fred Capps piece, if you will. Mm -hmm. And then the rest of what we did was usually mocking magic, inside jokes. And comedy. Yeah. Crazy stuff. <laughs> and a lot of juggling and uh, a lot of singing. We did a lot of original songs. Yes. And uh, what happened was we had a four-person group and it was Brent Warren and Cheeseman Spark, Kathy and I. And we put together a very nice theatrical show in what you might call poverty theater. We didn't make any money, <laughs> but we uh, put on a completely original show. And it was for the public. It wasn't a bunch of inside jokes. Mm -hmm. So we went out to Joe Stevens Convention in Wichita and Barrett Felker came with us just for the fun of it. He wasn't a magician, but he was one of the world's best jugglers. Mm -hmm. And uh, Eddie Goldstein from Boulder and Sam Kent were there. And we asked Joe, can you find a room for us and we'll put on a show? And he said, sure. So he gave us a slot like 10 a.m. Sunday morning or something. Yeah. And so we put on our show and Ali Bongo stopped in to see what is this all about? Well, he loved the show and he started talking us up and we didn't have any group. We were just a bunch of people from Colorado who had done this show. And so he talked us up, I presume to Riesel Bordner from Abbott's. Mm -hmm. So Riesel called Joe Stevens and said, how do we get the, these guys? And Joe had Sam Kent's phone number. So he called Sam and he said, I've got a job for you. And so we had this four person performing group, but Sam was the guy who got the gig. So he invited himself to join our group uh, <laughs> because he's the guy that Joe called. <laughs> right, and, right. and Barrett Felker had done his juggling in our show and he was a tremendous hit because he was just so great. So Barrett joined our group and we were thrilled to have him. And then Eddie jumped in. So we suddenly changed from four people to seven. And we had to come up with something for the Abbott's get together because they were going to give us a whole headlining slot on the big stage. As I recall, that was like around 1980, wasn't it? Yeah, I'd say about 79 or 80. The first yeah. time I was at the Magic Castle was in 1976. And I had been to the castle and came back to Colorado before I met Kathy. Okay. And I had uh, worked down in Taos Ski Valley in 1974 and 75. So it would have been late 70s, 79, 80, something like that. So we had to put together a show for Abbott's. So we invented the name Phone Family Circus. We wrote some songs. We got some choreography. And it just wasn't that common for a magic act to come out 
starting with singing and dancing. <laughs> and so we were an enormous hit because we were so different from anybody else. And all of, most of our magic was done tongue in cheek. Like mm -hmm. you said, the, the 12 days of magic was just this frenetic uh, chaos. It was kind of like a Laurel and Hardy routine. Yeah. And it got faster and faster and faster. And this was Sam's claim to fame. This was the only piece that he did in the show, but he did an outstanding job. And we won the award for uh, funniest routine. Oh, it's the Senator, Senator Crandall Award for a comedy, I guess. Was that it? The Senator <clears throat> Crandall Award. Now, you had also done as part of that was the, the classic bit of the Cuda Bucks thing with the towel wrapped around his head. I Some people who are younger who are listening to, I know we have a, a wide variety of ages uh, and backgrounds of people who are listening to the podcast, but can you, that was one of my favorite pieces. Can you explain that first who Cuda Bucks was and that particular routine and kind of how it evolved and what happened to it and who used it? Yeah, I'd love to talk about that because Kuda deserves to be remembered. He was from Pakistan, and he was known as the man with the X-ray eyes. Mm -hmm. And I think he did all kinds of magic over his life, but his most famous piece was his blindfold act. And he did not do the standard thing where you scotch tape coins to your eyes and then look down your nose. He had a uh, bowl of basically pie dough, water and flour mixed together to make a paste. Mm -hmm. And he would get two volunteers from the audience and they would shove that pie dough in his eye sockets and completely seal the eye. You just could not believe that there was any possibility that he could get even a, a, a glimpse of light. Right. Then over this uh, dough, he would put a large, thick bandage. And this was like a bandage you might use for a gunshot wound. It was like four inches wide, half uh -huh. inch thick, a foot long. He'd wrap that around his head. And then he would, uh, the, the audience volunteers would put all this stuff on his face and they would wrap his head up in essentially towels. So when he was done, his head looked like an enormous turban. Yeah. And yet he could see and do a tremendous blindfold routine. I People saw him performing at the Magic me. Castle one time. I know exactly what you're talking about, but that's why I wanted you to go in the detail you did, because as I recall, things that he would do, there'd be a blackboard and someone would write or just scribble some sort of a picture or whatever. And then he would come over and he would trace right over that particular uh, chalk mark. Yes. The very first time I was at the Magic Castle, I got to see Kuda. Yeah. And my dad was one of the audience volunteers. Wow. And so uh, when a person came up to write, if they wrote, you know, uh, I see a dog and they did it with printing, Kuda would replicate what they wrote with the same writing style. And mm -hmm. I remember uh, this woman wrote a big symbol on the blackboard and Kuda looked at it with his x-ray eyes. And he said, this is the symbol of the Holy Ohm. And then he... Uh, <laughs> He outlined it. And so he could reproduce any writing because he could see through this blindfold. And as far as I know, uh, the secret has never been revealed. No. Jerry Andrus told me, he said, Steve, if you look at where you know he has to be seeing and draw an imaginary line back to his eye, you'll see how he did it. And Scott, I did a whole week at the Magic Castle with Kuda uh, on the stage of the Palace of Mystery. So I got to watch him two times a night 
yeah. for a week. So I probably saw that routine 25 times over my lifetime. And I honestly, I don't have a clue. <laughs> and, wow. and have you ever heard of anybody who claimed to know the secret? No, I have not. That's why I'm saying it. I know it has not been published in any place, uh, to my knowledge. And I have not talked with uh, all the mentalist friends I have, uh, Banachek being my business partner and other people. No, we've, uh, I, don't, I don't think anyone has ever figured out how he did what he did. I figured if anybody knew, it must have been Max Maven. And I only asked him about it a couple of times and uh, he either didn't know or or wouldn't say. Yeah. I, I got to admit, one time I was backstage during that week when I was working with Kuda and I was fooling around backstage and all of his props were piled up on a table. Yeah. And I had too much respect to just dig through it. Yeah. But I was too tempted to completely resist. <laughs> so I walked over by the table and without touching anything, I just I just looked at it and I knew that if there was anything to find, he wouldn't have left everything out right on the table. And it was just, I mean, for for the it, listeners of the podcast, um, I can tell you, Scott and I have seen every trick <laughs> in the world. And when you see a trick 20, 25 times, you finally start to catch on. And you should. <laughs> man, I, I never caught on. Wow. But uh, our routine was a, a joke on Kuda. We all knew him and he was he was friendly with us. And and everybody in the world of magic knew Kuda at this right. time. And so after he got the blindfold on, it was more than just a, a turban. It was like his head was completely enveloped in these big towels. I think they were large linen dinner napkins, but his head was like a, an enormous ball of cloth. And so we came up with the idea that we would put the blindfold on Kuda. Eddie Goldstein came out and he spoke with a Pakistani accent. He said, my name is Kuda Phone. I will now show you something I learned since I was a child. It is an amazing demonstration. And so we got him all wrapped up and we put the chalk in his hand. And now he's supposed to invite people up to write on the chalkboard. But instead, he turns to the chalkboard and he just writes out, I can't. And he starts out to spell breathe, R-E-A-T-H. And then he falls over and he's passed out on the floor <laughs> because people, when they saw Kuda in his blindfold, they would say, how does, how does he breathe under that? So we did the, I can't breathe gag. And that got an enormous laugh. Yeah. It was an inside joke, but everybody loved it. And it was so good that Johnny Thompson actually asked us if he could do the Kuda box routine. So we said, sure, Johnny have at it. And uh, he paid us a dollar and, um, we said, there you go. Do it anytime you want. And I found out on your podcast that he did the trick at least once mm -hmm. uh, with Tom Mullica. Right. So it was popular enough that uh, the great Johnny Thompson thought it was worth a laugh. <laughs> Indeed. Well, yeah, I just think some of our listeners would uh, certainly enjoy the history of that or those who have seen his act. Uh, will appreciate it as well as those who haven't. I mean, I, I just think a lot of respect needs to go to some of these people who are, have 
made it classics and people who were not perhaps as well known as let's say uh, Harry Blackstone Sr. and Thurston and Keller and others, but there are people like Kuda Bucks who had a unique thing with the man with the x-ray eyes. That was, that was amazing. That's true. <laughs> now you had some other people, as I recall, I, I, there were so many things going on. Everybody loves jugglers. When you go to a magic convention, a juggler always seems to outshine all the others. And those are the ones who are remembered. So I'm sure when you had Eddie Felker to, uh, to be a juggler that people were remembering. I remember another group that came through a little bit later, Air Jazz. Were you familiar with those guys? Yeah. Air Jazz was made up of three uh, bolder jugglers. But Barrett Felker was not a member of Air Jazz. The, um, the number one guy who formed Air Jazz was Peter Davison. And That's he him. had won the top award at the International Jugglers Association Convention. And then I believe Barrett Felker went back and won the number one slot at the IJA. And Barrett teamed up with a guy named... Um, Alan Jacobs, who also won the number one award at the IJA. So Barrett was absolutely top flight, um, very well respected in the juggling world. Cheeseman Spark and I, we were average jugglers, but we had some funny stuff. We would sing about vegetables and then juggle them and sing the song. There was one <laughs> part. Uh, it's always such a treat to heave two carrots and a beat. They go through the air like singing, like streaming jets. All you see are the silhouettes. And they're also good to eat the carrot, but not the beat. And then we'd take a bite out of the carrot and then we'd sing our song, uh, which was the juggling Jubilee. So it wasn't exquisite juggling, but it was, it was novelty. And Jay Marshall told me one time, he did a lot of puppetry and ventriloquism. When he went to a puppet, Tears convention, he would do magic. That way he would stand out from the crowd. And then when he went to a magician's convention, he would do ventriloquism. Yeah. So he would stand out from the crowd. So the, the jugglers always stand out at a magician's convention because they're not doing magic like everybody else is. Right. That's really more of the novelty, I guess, something that is different from whatever the norm would be at whatever that convention is. You say in a juggler's convention that a magician would stand out. So something that is a novelty and different from the rest of what the attendees would see at that particular kind of a convention. Now, for some reason, right. I was thinking that Steve Spill was part let me, of that. Let me jump in here, if yeah. I may. I, I saw an act in uh, Little Rock, Arkansas, and it was illusion. But it was a mime act, uh, and it was Jack Hill and Graciela Banagi. And they went behind a screen, and they just did a mime act. And uh, since it was two people, they would have, like, a leg sticking out uh, one side of the screen and then the head sticking out the other side. So it looked like an elongated human. It was much right. longer than the screen. And then the same thing, uh, she would reach her hand up high, and he would reach his hand out to the right. And it was they created an illusion of an elastic person behind the screen. So without any thumb tips or magic gimmickry, they created visual illusions that were very powerful. And they were uh, the most popular act at that, that convention. Is that was part of the phone family circus or was that a separate act? By no, itself? that was an act that I saw oh. in Arkansas. And it's just an example of 
you don't have to do much to stand out from the world of magic if you just tweak things a tiny bit rather than, you know, following the instructions as they came in the package. <laughs> I see. That's true. I I started to say that Steve Spill, I thought when you said you would work with him then at the Tower uh, Barn Grill out in uh, in Snowmass, uh, he never worked with the Phone Family Circuit. For some reason, I thought that he was one of or part of your group for a short time, but he was not. No. Okay. Um, Bob Sheets and uh, J.C. Wagner and Steve Spill had their own place in Aspen called the Jolly Jester. Mm -hmm. And uh, Bob opened that place up in downtown Aspen. And he had been up at the Tower Restaurant, which is in Snowmass. Same place. It's just a ski area that's close by. Right. And so I was, if you want to say it, Bob Sheets' replacement while I was there. Okay. At the Tower. Because he went over to the Jolly Jester in the in the area, basically. Now, of course, that was well before they had moved out to the East Coast and opened up the what was that called? Yeah, Chevy Chase. I think they the I think they continued to use Brook Farm Inn. Brook Farm, that's it. Brook Farm Inn, and I don't know if they continued to use the name Jolly Jester or not. But Eddie Goldstein, who was in the Phone Family Circus, Bob invited him to come out and work at the Brook Farm Inn, and Eddie was a school teacher. He's, hmm. he's a great mathematician. And to this day, he is still using magic to produce science material for the public. Hmm. But he always wanted to be a professional magician, but he was afraid of doing freelancing. Yeah. He, he liked the idea of having a steady job. So when well. Bob <laughs> offered him a, a steady job where he could go and be on stage every day, every week with a, with a known, you know, a predictable outcome, he jumped on the chance. So he left Colorado and went to work with Bob. And when he came back to Colorado, oh man, he was, he was a master performer because sure. he had learned under the tutelage of Bob Sheets. And then also just performing, having plenty of flight time and going out and doing this night after night and everything. I'm sure that helped then a lot, as you say, then having learned from Bob and, and others who were out there. Now, when he came back, did he continue then as a professional and find some success or did he go back into uh, teaching? Well, what he did was he worked for the um, Science Museum. And so he became the director of public outreach programs where they would maybe have a telescope and he would dress up like Galileo oh. and uh, talk about the history of astronomy. One of the programs he produced was uh, about exploration of Mars and they mm -hmm. set up a simulation of the Mars environment. And so he didn't always do magic, but he included magic very often. One time he had a bed of nails and he hired a local magician to come in and lie down on the bed of nails. And then they would explain that your weight is distributed across all the different nails evenly. Therefore, not no individual nail has enough pressure to penetrate your skin. And so he would do all kinds of magic in his programs when it was appropriate. 
Right, right. Now, when you started out, we were talking earlier about being in Boulder, and when the Phone Family Circus had come about, everyone, I guess, congregated in the Denver area. Did you guys live in a little... I always envisioned you guys like living in a commune or close to each other where you can actually work on these different ideas. It's like, oh, I got this idea, whatever, and they go all day and night with different things from writing music and different bits and scripts. I lived in Boulder because I worked for Sam Kent. He had a magic shop and Eddie and I were inseparable in those days. I virtually lived at his apartment, but that's just because I was always hanging out there. And then when I lived in Denver, Kathy and I actually shared a house and Spark lived across town and Brent Warren lived way up in Netherlands. So it was a long drive for him to come down Mm -hmm. and join the show. So we, we never had that, commune situation but uh one time all seven of us were hired to perform at the ibm convention in houston Mm -hmm. and uh we didn't get paid a lot of money so we only rented one (laughs) hotel room so all seven (laughs) of us were packed in there funny and uh barrett felker there was no place for him to lie down so he slept in the bathroom with his feet sticking out the door (laughs) that is funny i now remember that it was i want to say that was about 1978 or so i think in uh, houston that was the one and only time the ibm national convention was here in houston and uh there was uh, boy, what i remember most about that was there was uh, a death there was someone who had gotten murdered coming back yeah it was a magician from germany Mm -hmm. and he was held up on the street and the um the robber, the mugger, apparently mm-hmm. had a gun. And so uh, the German guy didn't really know what to do. So to try to, um, I don't know, to try to protect himself, he pretended like he didn't speak English and he feigned ignorance, thinking maybe if he just said, oh, ich kann du nicht verstehen, was, was willst du haben? You know, he he thought that would de-escalate the situation, and apparently, it aggravated the mugger, and he shot the guy, and so the poor guy came all the way from Germany to see some magic, and that was that was the end of his life. That's right. And what I recall also, he was walking back with his fiance or girlfriend uh, at the time, and I think the problem was that. I don't remember the passport situation, but something about that she couldn't get back to Germany because he had the papers that she needed. I mean, things have changed, obviously, now, and it's a lot different. But for some reason, she was held up here in the States uh, as far as being questioned or something. Couldn't couldn't get back oh, to Germany yeah. for some time. There was some difficult. Anyhow, yeah, that was uh, un- a very unfortunate turn of events. And nothing has happened like that before nor since, nor at any convention, as far as a murder. Well, that I've heard of someone dying at a convention, uh, except for that, that was uh, uh, very unique. And obviously things have changed. And we hope that perhaps we'll bring the IBM convention back to Houston again, because <laughs> that was, uh, uh, yeah, what almost 50 years ago 45 years ago or so wow boy time back yeah our conventions are are almost always just a source of uh enjoyment and joy and fun for everyone and we don't really experience a lot of uh crime in the magic 
community. No. And now when you were performing then also, it seemed that your main venue was conventions in which you were performing. And you said you had a lot of inside jokes and things, but you also then perform for the public in the Denver area. So uh, how did you sell tickets or do you remember about what, how things might've been different then than now? Or do you think that if you still had that thing together, you could, uh, you could market this? Well, the Fun Family Circus came together just uh, by by serendipity because Joe Stevens called Sam and we had done the uh, 12 days of magic routine at a local magicians club meeting. And I never thought the routine was that good. I thought that everybody laughed because they knew us and we were local guys and uh, they liked it. Uh-huh. But Sam really believed in that routine and he wanted to do it. He wanted to join up with us. And so I was reluctant to increase the size of our group. Uh, so if I were to do anything like that today, I would definitely want to have a smaller, more compact unit. But because it was done by magicians for magicians, we got work at, oh, probably seven or eight conventions. Mm-hmm. And that's the only place where the Phone Family Circus actually performed. Otherwise, Kathy and I would do shows, just the two of us. Oh. Uh, and the four of us, uh, the name of our group was Parataki Ori. And we did shows in theaters and nightclubs, uh, bank parking lots, you know, the typical thing where we would just customize the show to whatever venue we were in. Mm-hmm. And we worked a bunch of places all over Denver. So we hit the, the big small time in, in Denver. And all of that magic was strictly for public consumption. We didn't do the Cuda Bucks routine anywhere except at magic conventions. Gotcha. Yeah, I would think today that it would be a little bit more difficult to put a group together because after the conventions have seen an act and it's kind of gone through everything, unless that you've got something completely new the next year, or it's kind of like, well, I've already seen them. So just like you need to see this group. It's really great. But after you've seen them, it's like, okay, I've seen that. And so they're looking for something new. I just think people have that short attention span, perhaps, and just like we want something that's the next new thing. So it'd have to continue to uh, be feeding that shark because it's continuing to move, I guess. I'm just saying it'd be a little bit difficult when you also stop to think about how little the magic conventions would pay and you would have a large group of people. And of course, the transportation and getting out there and everything would be eaten up by whatever fees that you're going to be getting. So it had to be something you'd be doing for the love of it. Certainly wouldn't be for profit, I would think. Yeah, that's exactly right. We um, used up our material. We did have one comeback to uh, Abbott's and we came up with as much new material as we could. And our second performance there was not as successful, mainly because of technical difficulties. Hmm. Our first time at Abbott's, we used Stan Cramian's lights and sound equipment because he had it all set up for his show. And he Mm -hmm. just said, everybody gets to use my lights and sound. We had no idea that Abbott's did not own their own lights and sound. They had like a walkie-talkie and a spotlight. And I mean, it was primitive, and yet they had been putting magic conventions on for 40 years. Right. But their technical uh, 
expertise was sadly <laughs> lacking. lacking. Yeah. Now, when we did the show where with the song you talked about with the cover of the Linking Ring, that was um, just Kathy and I, mm-hmm. and we got to perform with Jay Marshall, and we did a show. They called it the um, they called it the Magic Cabaret. And so they broke the audience up into small groups. And we did our show, I think, four or five times. So if you had a yellow ticket, you would come Saturday morning. If you had a red ticket, you'd come Saturday afternoon. If you had the blue ticket, you'd come Sunday morning. Mm -hmm. And so we got to do our show in a smaller venue. And I got to perform with Jay, which was the thrill of a lifetime, and also with a guy who, who did bubbles he blew bubbles and created some tom naughty tom naughty i saw the show i remember that yep and uh another guy on that show was uh mike marlin who was a juggler juggler sure and uh may i tell you uh an anecdote from that please do (laughs) yes i don't know if you ever heard of oh what is the guy's Name the guy who had the yacht. Oh, uh, that'd be John Calvert. John Calvert. Okay, so <laughs> we're doing our show with Mike Marlin, and he was a very charming, what you would call a hippie juggler. Yeah. And so we went to the big auditorium, and Mike was the MC. So we all go into the auditorium and Mike comes out and he's doing like a little warm up for the for the crowd. Yeah. And he starts juggling with scarves and he's telling us a story. So he says, once there was a boy and he throws up a blue scarf and once there was a girl and he throws up a pink and they had a green Chevy and he pulls out a green scarf and he's juggling and telling a story. Uh huh. And he finishes and we give him some applause and he goes up to the mic and says, okay, it's about time to get our show started. And all of a sudden he freezes and he backs up to the curtain and you can see him standing next to the curtain and he's listening to somebody giving him a message from behind the curtain. And he says, yeah, okay. (laughs) You really want me to do that, huh? Well, okay. If you say so. And he comes back to the microphone. He says, all right, everybody, I want you to leave the auditorium. Now, there's no danger. It's not an emergency. The building's not on fire. But just just go back out to the lobby and stand around for a while. And we'll (laughs) let you know when it's time to come back in. Okay. So this is an auditorium, six, seven, eight hundred people. I don't know. A great big theater. We all walk out in the lobby, stand around, look at each other and say, wonder what's going on. And so then we go back into the auditorium, the lights go out, and then you hear a voice that says, ladies and gentlemen, John Calvert. And Calvert comes out and does his act. The cigarette which, manipulation down the aisle. Yeah, which I thought was terrible, but that's another story. <laughs> and so the, the show went on, and nobody could understand what had happened. Hmm. But I was lucky enough to get the inside scoop from Mike the next day. Turns out that Mike is going out there doing his audience warm up, mm-hmm. and John Calvert is backstage and he's saying, Who's out there? Who's out there on the stage? Who is that person? What's he doing? 
And the stage manager is saying, well, that's that's the MC and he's doing a little warm up to get the crowd rolling. And, you know, he's the MC for the show. He's getting the show started. And Calvert is saying, nobody gets on the stage before I do. Nobody announces me. I don't want any warm up act. What's he doing out there? Get him off the stage. And the stage manager is saying, well, you know, <laughs> it, he's part of the show. He's the MC. And Calvert says, no, he's not. Nobody does that. I want the lights to go dim, and I want an offstage announcement that says, ladies and gentlemen, John Calvert, that's the only, if you don't do it my way, I'm leaving. I'm, I am not going to perform. I, oh, wow. I'm not going to put up with this. <laughs> so he's just having a fit backstage. Wow. <laughs> so when, when Mike Marlin backed up to the curtain, the, the stage manager is whispering to him, just tell everybody to leave. <laughs> And come and back in we'll and we'll start over. <laughs> yeah. And so we left the auditorium. We came back in. The lights went down. And the offstage announcement said, ladies and gentlemen, John Calvert. And then and then he did his show. <laughs> oh, man. I had never heard that before. <laughs> That's a little bit of a prima donna there. But um, <clears throat> he had he had a show. Speaking of which, I, were you the one who said this joke? Uh I, when he was performing, remember he had three volunteers and he did cups and balls basically where he would put a ball, uh, one of his balls in somebody's mouth and then it would come out of somebody else's or have two or whatever, or that he used the people as a cups and then he had these little round balls. Do you remember that? Routine? He did that trick in that show that night. Yeah. And that's the only thing I really remember about him because that trick just disgusted me. He putting was, something in other people's mouths like that. Yeah, yeah, he takes the ball out of his pocket and he had it in his grimy hands and he would make it vanish and then pull it out from behind your ear or whatever. And then he would just slap the spectator's face with an open palm. And you could tell he just shoved a ball in their mouth because they had this quizzical look on their face Yeah, and they weren't smiling, you know, and he stage whispered to them, keep this ball in your mouth until I tell you. And then he would do it to the next person and he would do it to the third person. And then he'd show his hands empty and then he'd walk up to each person with his hand palm up and they would spit the ball into his hand. And I, I think it's the most repulsive uh, routine I ever saw in all my years in magic. Yeah. I hadn't seen that before or since he was the only one who did that. And uh, I thought that was you who had said to me or some comment about, you know, how th this guy is the only way he can get away with uh, shoving his balls in someone's mouth on stage or something. <laughs> well, I don't remember making that quote. Maybe that wasn't you, but it some... sounds like me. Were you at that convention and did I you was. see it? Yes, I did. <laughs> and do you remember the exit to the lobby? I, yeah, I didn't know what was going on about that though, either. So that is, uh, that clarifies something that was a mystery of life. <laughs> the six, the secret is out after all these years. <laughs> that had to be again, early eighties sometime, 81 to somewhere. Yeah, 81, 82, something like that. I have the linking ring here in my house and they put us on the, you know, our song was basically begging them or forcing them to put us on the cover of the linking ring. And it was a big inside joke with a lot of references to the professor and Bill and Irene Larson and all that. And so sure enough, we, we conned them into putting us on the cover of the magazine, but it was the 
IBM Golden Jubilee or something like that. It was yeah. the 50th anniversary of the International Brotherhood of Magicians. Mm -hmm. Yep, that that is true. I recall also there was a when when Divern used to have his column in Genie Magazine, he had said something about the Phone Family Circus as well, uh, of saying how impressed that he was, and that if you ever get a chance to see them at a convention, you need to go to the convention just to see the Phone Family Circus because they're so entertaining. So I know he was one of your fans as well. No kidding. Uh, yeah. Well, that's news to me, but that's uh, pleasant to, to find out. <laughs> yes. Uh, now, as far as that uh, song goes, yeah, that was kind of blatant of saying, you know, we're on the cover of the Linking Ring and it was funny. It's like you know, almost, uh, you know, begging them to do that. And they did put that uh, on the cover of the Linking Ring. And that was a parody yeah, let on. Let me explain that for the, for the yeah. listeners. There yes. was a guy named, uh, I think it was Dr. Hook. Dr. Hook. Right. And here in the United States, there's a famous magazine called Rolling Stone magazine. And so they did this song. Uh, I want to be on the cover of the Rolling Stone. Uh, I'm going to buy five copies for my mother. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, I just can't wait until I'm on the cover of the Rolling Stone. So we did a parody of that and we did the uh, cover of the Linking Ring. And all the lyrics were inside jokes uh i remember part of it was uh let's see we know bill and princess larson and we've been on johnny carson joe and martha stevens know us well we know copperfield and henning bruce servan and larry jennings we even got four stars from ed michelle so ed michelle was like the guy who reviewed tricks mm -hmm. in the in the linking ring magazine and bill larson of course ran the magic castle so we just did all this name dropping as if we were important people in the world of ma uh, magic, because look at all the famous people that we know. And so then we said, so we, and the, the editor of the linking ring, his name was Howard Bauman. Mm -hmm. So we sang, we spoke to Howard Bauman. We said, you know, that we're uncommon we're as hot as any group you've ever seen. So with these enormous credits, we were hoping you would get us on the cover of your magazine. And Howard came up after the show and congratulated us. And then Kathy gave him a big kiss. And uh, sure enough, that worked. Well, you're leaving out an important part, and that is you had this thing that unrolled. It looked like the linking ring with a cutout where the picture would normally be with the logo across the top and everything. And you kind of took a smile like, you know, you take our picture here. And that was the picture on the cover, which was of the cover of the cover. Yeah. Yeah, we made a virtual, we, we put ourselves in, in a frame like a picture hanging on a wall, yeah. as if as if it were the the magazine cover. <laughs> now, coming up with something like that, did, I, I know as a creator, sometimes things come to you and other times you have to toil over it and it could take days, weeks, months, or years. In this particular case, when you were writing that, did you have a deadline saying, hey, we want to do this for this parlor show and started it then? Or did it come pretty quickly? Or did uh, Kathy come to you? Or how did this, uh, how did that come about? What was your creative process, I guess? Well, I can't recall too many details, but Joe Stephen called us up and said, Steve, I got a gig for you at the Jubilee convention. You're going to work with uh, Jay Marshall. And so I talked to Kathy and I said, let's do our standard magic song, but let's do something uh, original and clever because everybody knows us from Phone Family Circus. And so that song, cover of the Rolling Stone, it just made sense, cover of the linking ring. So we sat together and probably worked out the lyrics over a period of maybe two days. Wow. 
And then, of course, the the um, the melody was already created right. from the original song, but everybody knew the song. So it was kind of like coming up with new lyrics to a popular song that people could tap their foot to. And we knew that it would be uh, well received because the song was so well known by everybody across the United States. Isn't and then that we knew that all those inside jokes he would love to hear that. Is that available like on YouTube or someplace as far as uh, digital recording or audio of this somewhere? No, there weren't iPhones in those days. Well, and yeah. Nobody video recorded the show and we don't have an audio recording. Uh, I just remember the lyrics, at least some of them. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> the rest, you have to take my word for it. <laughs> sure. That'd be something I think riot. would be... That would be of interest, perhaps, if you could put that to music sometime next. You go back and start to write down from your memory those lyrics you do recall, and maybe starting as time passed, might start to remember to fill in some other things, or maybe talk with some other friends to see what they might remember, and then actually oh. record that. I think it'd be a very easy—I say easy thing to do as far as uploading and putting that on YouTube or someplace. I'll see what I can do on that. We do have some poor quality video from. Um, Wichita, and when Max Maven died, we another routine we did was written just for Max Maven, and I guess we would call it the Max Maven song or mm -hmm. the, the Mentalist song, but we did a rock and roll number, and we dressed in black, and we put the ESP symbols on our back, so one of us would have plus sign, one of us would have three wavy lines. Oh, yeah. And then we did a, a rock and roll number with choreography, kind of like the four tops. And I have that on video and I just edited it so I could show some people on a Zoom meeting. So I could upload that to YouTube and then you could see the uh, Max Maven. So was that a parody song also based upon a popular tune of the day? It was an original song, an oh. original lyrics okay and, okay uh it was uh he's a good mentalist today and he's not afraid to say concentrate on your card i'm great i'm a star i'm gonna find out what you're thinking because when i snap my fingers i'm linking up to your brain trust me so it was a bunch of stuff you know max would say things like trust me yeah, uh, I'm going to link to your brain. When I snap my fingers, you will name a number between five and 20, blah, blah. And uh, Max never got to see the routine, but I did send him a cassette tape and he wrote back and said, yeah, good job. I, I enjoyed that. How nice. That's wonderful. Well, I know there were a lot of people, again, you say the seven people who were part of the troupe. And you told me that uh, Kathy DeFrancis had passed uh, recently of cancer. Was that right? Uh, she had Crohn's disease Crohn's. and um, she just got weaker and weaker as the years went by. And so I'm going to say it was four years ago that she died. Okay. And uh, as to where they are now, what about some of the other uh, people uh, in the trip? Brent, Brent Warren still lives in Netherlands, Colorado, still does magic, still does anything that's creative. He is the most talented Renaissance man of magic because he can write stories and poems, write original songs. He plays music 
and he's an amazing sculptor and oil painter. And so magic is almost a sideline wow. uh, with Brent. And then Eddie still does the um, science outreach programs. Cheeseman Spark ended up going to San Francisco where he worked as a lawyer. And then he started a recording company, Zip Records. And he lives in Holland now. Hmm. And then Barrett Felker, uh, as far as I know, is still juggling. He teamed up with Alan Jacobs. So they had a two-person juggling act where both uh, members of the group were national champions. Hmm. And so they just, any place where there's a variety show, they would be there. Like cruise ships and every, every place probably around the world. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know much about how many places they played, but they were the one and only uh, Barrett was the only guy from phone family circus who ever visited me in Montana. So mm -hmm. it was very exciting. He called me up and said, I'm coming through town. So we sat down and reminisced. When did you go to Montana? Oh, I went there in, I think it was 1998. Okay. And I started working as a software engineer and I didn't expect to do any magic. And then I ended up getting the best magic job of my life, which was at a dude ranch. And uh, they had a winter program and a summer program. Mm -hmm. So during the summer, I would work outdoors in a cowboy outfit on a wooden sidewalk. It was kind of like Dodge City. And they had a general store and a jail and all these different buildings. And these were facades. When you went inside the building, it was the hotel room where the guests would stay. Oh, I see. So um, during the summer months, I did essentially uh, street magic in Western garb for a bunch of people out on this dude ranch. And oh, man, they ate it up. And then in the winter, they had a great big barn uh, they called a livery. And it was just like a livery stable, but they didn't actually have horses in there. It was clean with uh, tables and chairs. And I would walk from table to table and do close-up magic. And it was the greatest thing because I knew what was going to be on the table. I knew what kind of napkins they were going to use. So I had a Glorpy made with their kind of napkin and they had a lamp, like a, a what do you call it? A kerosene lamp in right. the center of the table. And so, you know, the gate and bloom trick where you tear the corner of the card off. Yes. And you can make it match. Right. And you can mail the torn card to somebody two continents away. I would have a torn eight of spades under the lamp on, you know, row three, column two, that table would have the torn eight of spades under the lamp. Mm -hmm. And so I had the whole environment set up with all kinds of tricky surprises. And then wow. I would walk through the table and make it look like, well, I just happened to pick up this napkin and I just happened <laughs> to shove this fork through it. And then I just happened to find um, this under my hat. But I had that whole livery uh, preset for my show. Now, was Kathy DeFrancis uh, living with you at the time then, too? No, we split up in Colorado, and I moved to Colorado Springs. I ended up getting married to Kathy's cousin, hmm. whose name was Christine. And I kept in touch with her because she started a 
uh, booking agency, a talent agency, and she booked all of the comedians in Colorado. Mm -hmm. And so I worked at the comedy nightclub, the Comedy Works, and Kathy would book me and send me out on various gigs all across the state of Colorado. So I kept in touch with her uh, over the years. And then eventually you moved up to Washington State. Yeah, we were in Bozeman, and when the when the plague came, when the uh, pandemic came, right, uh, we were sitting looking at each other, and we said, "Let's get out of here," uh, because Bozeman was getting too big, and uh, we had passed through this region on a trip to Seattle, and there's all these apple orchards here, and I've always loved fruit trees, and as we were driving through, I said to my wife, who is Jasmine. Uh, I said, wouldn't you love to live here one day? And she said, oh, yeah, this really appeals to me. So when the pandemic came, uh, we were just shut up in the house in Bozeman. There's nothing we could do. And we looked at each other and said, what was the name of that town where we said we'd, we'd like to live there one day? And so we looked it up on the Internet and we found this house and the pictures just looked amazing. And we said, what the hell? Let's get in the car and just drive out there tomorrow. Um, because it was on like realtor.com, you know, mm -hmm. was the right. house. And so we just hopped in the car, drove out and said, look at this. You get a house, a barn, an orchard. This is Shangri-La. Let's sell our house in Bozeman and move here. And it was a, a quick, but nevertheless, reasonably well thought out uh, decision because it was consistent with our goals. And so we came out here and I've been an apple farmer for uh, two years now. Now, owning the orchard, do you harvest those all yourself or at a certain time of year, you have some temporary people come and help and do you sell these to grocery stores or a farmer's market or how do you market your wares? There's a, a fellow who owns a lot of acreage and he has tractors and forklifts and all that. And so he uh, leases the land. He doesn't actually pay us. But he uh, takes care of everything and brings in people to pick, and they fill these enormous bins. It's about a cubic yard of apples per bin, and he trucks them away to a cold storage facility that's about two miles from here, and he takes care of all of it. And what I do is pick all the apples that I want. So I make, uh, I make apple juice, I make dried apples, I make pies. We also have cherries and plums and peaches just a few of mm -hmm. those so i uh we can peaches and we make cherry pies and the rest of the time our our, our leasing agent handles handles the heavy work it sounds like you have very little time then with all that work to do for magic i guess you don't perform or do anything anymore with uh there is a local magicians club i guess you'd say and we've got about five uh, participants and we get together every other week and so I've, I, I work on a, a new trick for those guys and then I have had three shows out here on the farm mm -hmm. and w two of them we had a huge crowd and it was very successful uh, a nice sort of um, autumn early September uh, outdoor show and oh man they were spectacularly successful but, you know, uh, when I was a, a professional, I, I had my A material and I stuck with that. Mm -hmm. And I would not I would go to lectures and I would see new tricks 
And Scott, I, I took notes at the uh, Magic at the Rockies convention. Yeah. Uh, I would always attend Magic in Rockies because I was the guy who started Magic in the Rockies. In Fort Collins? In Well, I started it up in um, Estes Park. Estes Park, yeah. But then they started doing it in Fort Collins. And so every year they would invite me to be the guest of honor. Mm-hmm. So I would drive down from Bozeman and I would uh, attend the convention. And I took notes different different um lecturers uh like the guy from uh vegas who did the trick with the with the funny hand um kevin james kevin james he did a lecture that was just tremendous and david regal was at convention he showed some amazing tricks and i have pages and pages of notes with it says you know do this trick. And then I've got five stars and eight exclamation points. You must do this trick at the ranch. And then I would go back to Bozeman and I never did any of them. You fall back to your normal AAC. Right. I had spent a lifetime trying to acquire good stuff that worked for me. Right. So I am just not one of these guys with a thousand books on the wall and 16 closets of of material. But now that I'm an amateur and I hang out with the local guys, I dig up a new trick every couple of weeks so That's I can fun. so I can show these guys. Well, that leads me then to actually conclude here with uh, what I always like to ask my guests at the end and that is uh, the name of my podcast is called The Magic Word Podcast because I like to know what is it that's your philosophy of life as you've kind of lived such a full life and done so many things in magic and and uh, been professional now kind of as you say an amateur what is it that's important what is I don't mean a word but what is it that uh, would be important to you I'm so glad you asked me this because at that very same convention where John Calvert uh, through his fit uh, one of the one of the old timers from the IBM went up on stage and he said, you know, we love our conventions. And the, the great thing about it is all the friends that we see. Mm-hmm. And at the time I remember thinking, well, that's part of it, but really um, the big deal is to come and see great magic. But now looking back, I am in his camp completely. The, reward of choosing magic as a lifestyle is the friends you make meeting people like the professor was very exciting for me but meeting kuda bucks was one of the greatest uh experiences of my life it's not everybody who gets to meet the man with x-ray eyes who walked over hot coals and then you meet people like tom mullica and Brent Warren, and you make these uh, lifelong bonds with people who share that appreciation of the illusions of magic. And I think what we appreciate is how magic made us feel when we were young and the tricks fooled us. Mm -hmm. Before we learned the secrets, we would see the magic milk pitcher or the torn and restored newspaper, and we would just gasp with amazement. And so what we bring to the public is that feeling of amazement. And what we get out of it is the reward of being in the community of, of magicians. And for me, it's it's the place where I belong. 
So really, it sounds like friendship is very important to you and what we have learned and people we have met, not just the experiences, but what you gain from the experiences are are friends that are lifelong, like you and me. Yeah, yeah. How many conventions have we gone to together and we don't remember the tricks, but we sure remember that we shook hands. You said, I'm Scott, I'm Steve. And every single time we would bump into each other in the lobby of the hotel, it was like, there you are, buddy. I yeah. knew you'd be here. Great <laughs> to see you again. Well, it was good seeing you and good talking with you and catching up. And I know a lot of the listeners have learned a lot. And uh, those who didn't know much about the history have learned something new. And those who were part of this will now know some of the history behind that, like the John Calvert story and other things. This has been just a wonderful hour. Thank you very much. I appreciate your time, Steve. Well, I hope the listeners get something out of it. I know I did. And uh, what a great pleasure to be invited to talk with you today. Scott, I, I, I thank you from the bottom of my heart. It's great to see you again, buddy. And you too. So for the Magic Word Podcast, that was Steve Aldridge. This is Scotty out. Before we actually wrap this up, I do want to mention one more thing. After we were finished with our conversation, Steve said, well, if anybody's interested, by the way, in my lecture notes, I've got like a, a big you know, set of notes, like 60 or 70 pages or so that he's got available through Google Docs. And he'd be glad to send you a copy of that for absolutely free. All you need to do is to drop an email to Steve at steviealdridge at yahoo.com. That's S-T-E-V-I-E. Aldrich, A-L-D-R-I-C-H, at yahoo.com. And contact him. He will send you a link to that that you can download on Google Docs. And uh, he has some stuff that is, has been hidden for a long time, some things he had held back, which he finally released in this particular set of notes. And uh, it's absolutely free. But However, if you want to float him 3 or $4 for a cup of coffee or something, he said, I would appreciate that. And he can give you the details on how to uh, pay him for that if you wish to reimburse him. But he's just such a great guy. And he's just willing to uh, to share. And it's something that, again, he's really not performing much anymore and doesn't have a lot of stuff to sell or much, if anything at all, uh, particularly. So uh, this is something that he is offering then to you, the listener, for absolutely free of charge, and it is well worth your looking into. I highly recommend that you uh, contact him, get the uh, information on how that you can download this from Google Docs. Again, thank you very much, Steve Aldridge, and thank you, the listener, for tuning in to the Magic Word Podcast. Well, indeed, this has been a long, strange trip. And next week, speaking of trips, I'll be going to the Winter Carnival of Magic, and I will be reporting on all three days, so there will not be a podcast released at a regular time on Thursday morning, but it will come out sometime later that day or early the next morning whenever I can finally get that all put to bed and uploaded and everything. And then the following week, I'll be heading to the Magic Castle and performing out there. Anyhow, a lot of stuff coming up. And as I said, what a long, strange trip this has been to quote the Grateful Dead. Thank you, Jerry Garcia. And thank you, Steve Aldridge. So until next week, stay well, get booked, and remember that the real experience of magic is about the lifelong friends you make along your journey. This is Scotty Out. What we believe and I believe it's magic.